So I actually engineer viruses to deliver uh, therapeutic genes to people. Uh, and so I know that when, when people hear the word like or the phrase virus engineering, they get all freaked out now because of the pandemic. But actually, the, the vast majority of viruses do not cause human disease. Hi, I'm Dan Crow, a small business owner living in central Illinois, and you're listening to the Vance Crow podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Well, I don't think anybody is surprised that uh, it feels like 1984 right now. It feels like our attention is drawn to one conflict and we get really, really worked up about that where all of our energy and attention is going there. And then all of a sudden it's on some new conflict that's over here and we have to change directions. And so we're watching people change the background uh, flags and, and behind them and what they're talking about and what they're angry about. And so I've been trying to take a measured step back. And one of the ways that we can do this is to not leave behind the stories that uh, clearly are important, but that we never really saw to their conclusion. And the best example I have of this is, where did COVID come from? Just the other day, I went out on Twitter and asked that question, and I got dozens and dozens of answers, everything ranging from people that were a little bit sarcastic, like, hey, you're going to get in trouble for putting that out there, to people believing, yes, it's absolutely a lab leak, to other people saying, no, it's been completely debunked. And so I decided to have Alina Chan, author of the book Viral with Matt Ridley, um, that talks all about COVID. That book, as you remember back in November, was uh, shocking to me. It was one of those books that I found myself being completely engaged in and then sent it out to everybody I knew um, saying, hey, this is a worthwhile read. Well, now, six months later, we've had Alina back on and she is here to discuss what is the state of the of the um, origin of COVID and what is it that's uh, changed since her book was published. This is an, uh, a refreshing interview. Alina always seems to have an upbeat um uh, sense about her, but she's also so measured. She doesn't point the finger at people. She's trying to figure out how can we learn from this so that other viruses uh, don't come out and cause a pandemic in this same way. So I am really excited to publish this interview. We're going to get to that in just a second. But as many of you know, I've been doing these legacy interviews where I sit down with a loved one to uh, ask them about five areas of their life, their childhood, their career, their marriage, uh, parenting, and then the legacy that they want to leave behind. As you can tell from the scene you can see right here, we've invested in some really serious camera and lighting equipment and we are moving into a new studio. But in the meantime, while that studio is being built, we would love to do some of these interviews online over Zoom. And if you have a loved one that you'd like me to sit down and interview for 90 minutes trying to cover the span of their life to capture their memories, their values, and the essence of who they are, then you can go to store.articulate.ventures and there you can book a Zoom interview which right now is at a discounted price if you use um, the term Vance on your uh, checkout because we're trying to do a bunch of these interviews um, so that way we can get more practice, we can get more experience with the equipment and, uh, and be ready for when that studio opens. So if you're interested in me doing a legacy interview, go to store.articulate.ventures and use the promo code Vance, V-A-N-C-E, for 20% off until May when we should be moving into our new studio. Thank you so much. And now let's head to this interview with Alina Chan. Alina Chan, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back for a second time. 
So, uh, you know, the last time we were here, you were right at the edge. This was before anybody was even really allowed to talk about the lab leak theory. And now it's like nobody wants to talk about the lab leak theory because we've all moved on and are either talking about the Canadian trucker convoy or the conflict in Ukraine. Can you just give us a quick update to where is the status of the of the inquiry into whether or not this was a lab leak or a natural hypothesis? So there are actually no ongoing investigations. There are investigations that are about to start, but it's very slow. And so there has not actually been a formal investigation even launched yet. People are just still talking about it in the US government or in the uh, commission planning group. Uh, I would say where we are at right now is that the US intelligence community has said that they don't know. Both natural and lab-based hypotheses are plausible and need to be investigated. Uh, some public polls have been taken and they show that actually, regardless of whether you're a Democrat or Republican, regardless of your education level, the majority of Americans believe that this most likely started in a lab, that the pandemic came from a virus that emerged through research-related activities. So um, I think that maybe people are just maybe bored of this topic because it's, it's been drawn up for two years now and there are far more pressing issues and hence like the in invasion of Ukraine. So right now, everyone's bandwidths are, are too stretched out to pay attention to this origin issue. When we were talking before, the idea that you even uh, talked about, you know, that this could be leaking from a lab was dangerous to me. I remember sitting down with my executive producer and being like, hey, we might get taken off of YouTube for this. What was the experience like of going from having a, a hypothesis that people thought of as conspiracy theory to now being mainstream what is understood by the world? Well, I, I had hoped that it would be no longer controversial uh, two years later in, in 2022 to, to say that this might have started in the lab. But surprisingly, it's still very controversial and there's been a great deal of pushback from some of the prominent experts in virology and infectious diseases. So. As recently as, as I think three weeks ago, there was some preprints. So these are not peer reviewed studies that have been put out uh, saying in, I, I think, overly confident terms that those scientists believe that this virus started in the market. So they're, they're taking us back two years exactly to where we were in early 2020 when uh, it looked like there was early cluster of cases at the market that were definitely wild animals sold at that market. And, uh, based on on just that these these scientists are saying that they have this positive or they have incontrovertible evidence that this virus has a natural origin yeah it was uh I, the other day i went out on twitter and i said where do you where did covid come from right and this like instantly generated conversation and i would say most people fell into uh one of three camps either one they made a joke like are you allowed to talk about this Two, they just were like, hey, this is obvious, it's a lab leak. Or the third one, which I heard from a lot of like the scientific community, which was, hey, this is, uh, it's well known now, it's been documented, it was natural origins, and that that's just all there is. What is the weight of evidence that uh, the people that are saying, hey, we think it's a natural or origin, where is this coming from? Where did this data, how strong is it? 
So I, I think this is coming from a place of a lot of scientists not understanding how a natural origin should be tracked and what types of evidence to expect when a natural spillover, so an animal gives a human the virus, what types of evidence you would expect to find during an investigation. Uh, and these are quite easy to see when you look at, at SARS-1 and MERS, like how quickly they found an animal host. Uh, for SARS-1, it took them two months of isolating the virus to find the animal hosts at the market. So what happened in SARS-1 is that they knew that many of the first cases were people who had handled these animals. So not, not actually the animal traders, but chefs, uh, delivery people, waitresses, people who who's uh, the second point of contact for these animals, they'd gotten sick. So those scientists and investigators went straight for the market and they found infected animals, they found animal versions of the virus. And this is really important because it shows that it was not a human who brought the outbreak virus into the market and gave it to the animals, but that these animals actually carried their own version of the virus, which was likely related to what spilled over into humans. Uh, and, and they found antibody evidence amongst the traders at the market showing that these uh, sellers of the animals had been exposed frequently to SARS-like viruses. And so all of these evidence put together made a really strong case for natural origin of SARS-1 and, and similarly for MERS. But in SARS-2, the evidence stops at the early cases. So we just see that some of the early cases are people at the market, but they have not found animal hosts. They have not found uh, animal versions of the virus. So it's it's equally plausible that a, a sick person brought the outbreak virus into the market. Uh, they have not found antibody evidence to show that these viruses are expected to be found in animal uh, trading community in Wuhan. So all in all, there's this huge absence of evidence that you would hope that scientists and investigators would quickly find. So when I think about like finding a disease where all of the animals from that wet market, they're gone now, you know, like the, you know, they've already been sold or, you know, the people have all moved on or so much has changed. It seems like impossible for me to imagine how you could go backwards in time and discover where this came from or, or, you know, how it was established. How does that even get done at this point, two years afterwards? I think that's one extremely frustrating aspect of this problem is that we should have investigated as soon as possible. But there were some people who were like, why is this important? Why not wait until the pandemic is over and then we investigate? And back then, even two years ago, suddenly them, if you wait two years later, there's so little you can investigate at that point that it, it will be near impossible. And here we are two years later. <laughs> trying to investigate the origin of this pandemic. So it's very frustrating. Uh, but I would say that there's still enough data outside of China even that can help paint a better picture of what was happening in Wuhan in those early days. So we know that they were, there were US doctors who were based in Wuhan in uh, late 2019. And apparently those doctors have not been systematically interviewed to see what do you know about the earliest cases? What were the rumors being spread at the time? Was it definitely market linked? Or had you heard about this even in November or October before the market cluster? Uh, there is data on the animals being sold at that market, which exists uh, and has international collaborators on that study. Uh, they have been trying to share it with the World Health Organization, but the Chinese government won't let them. But we know that data exists. There's also a ton of communications and documentations exchanged between Chinese investigators and scientists and their uh, friends and, and contacts outside of China. So all of these need to be uh, collectively looked at. And the problem is that we have no investigation yet. So when you fire up your computer in the morning and you're like, hey, I'm going to spend some time working on this issue, are you 
still encountering new information that you didn't have before? What is it that someone like you can explore at this point to discover something novel? So most of the novel information that's coming out are actually emails that are being released through the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, and these tend to lean towards the lab origin hypothesis because we've seen from emails uh, released only last year, but but they were sent in early 2020, that actually many of the top experts in this field, even experts who studied the first SARS virus, thought that this pandemic virus most likely came from a lab. Uh, and despite that, their public stance has been, this is natural, <laughs> a lab is a conspiracy theory. Uh, and so those types of emails have rolled out. Uh, there have also been emails and grant documents released from the EcoHealth Alliance and the National Institute of Health, both of which have indirectly or directly funded uh, US taxpayer dollars to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And these documents and emails tell us a lot about the types of research that were happening in Wuhan. And it, it, it makes this very clear pathway for a SARS-2 like virus, a pandemic virus to, to go through from either Southeast Asia or China, South China, up into Wuhan, be grown there or manipul manipulated and potentially start a pandemic like the one we are living in right now. Since we spoke, I mean, your book had, I think, just been published, so it would have been November or December of last year. How much of your model in your mind of like where COVID came from and how it was spread and what happened, how much has changed since November? Well, I'd say that up until I think maybe the last week before we sent the manuscript off for printing, I had not been able to put any likelihood estimates on either natural or lab origin of COVID-19. But in September 2021, there was a grant document leaked from the EcoHealth Alliance showing that they had an exact roadmap, the type of which you'd expect SARS-CoV-2, the pandemic virus to have emerged from. So that that completely changed my mind about the likelihood of a, of a natural and, and lab origin. I At that point, I really did think that the evidence pointed more strongly towards a lab origin, because here you have a research group saying they're going to do the type of research. And then a year and a half later, a virus that could have come from that research pops up in their city. So it's it's such a coincidence. I don't know when else in history you could find such an example. <laughs> so for me, when when I saw that, I was like, OK, this this looks like it came from that lab because it's, it's too coincidental. Uh, but since then, uh, that, that story was really underreported, by the way, uh, and it even stunned some of these experts who had been pushing for natural origin for two years. Um, but since then, they have launched a counterattack <laughs> attack by saying, isn't it such a coincidence that the virus had an early cluster at the market? And so I, I can see how people on both sides can pick what looks more coincidental to them and say that I, I think this is the more likely hypothesis. Yeah, in international relations, they often use the phrase, um, where you sit determines where you stand, meaning if you're at the table because you're from the Eco Health Alliance or you're from the you know World Bank or China or whoever else is around there, where your seat is at the table is going to determine where your you know initial framing is, where, where you're coming away. Do you, when you look at that, think people have self-deceived themselves when you look at saying like, hey, you know, they're really wrong about this because of th this much data. Have they self-deceived themselves or do you think they are being deceptive themselves? I mean, I, I, I try not to go into that territory 
because it gets really messy. The moment you start assuming someone's motivations and incentives, it gets really messy unless there's a clear conflict of interest, unless clearly they had sent money to the research institute that could have caused the pandemic. Then in that case, you can say, obviously, <laughs> they would have a self-interest not to be seen as the culprit or, or the person responsible for this pandemic. Um, but but with, with other things, for, for most of the scientists arguing for natural origin, I'd, I'd say that I try to give them maximum benefit of the doubt until they prove otherwise. So most of the time, I do think that they have been uh, susceptible to a lot of peer influence or, or pressure. Um, because there are, there are some of these top virologists like saying as loudly as possible, telling every reporter they can find the New York Times, <laughs> putting on breaking news on the front page during the Ukraine invasion, saying that they have found this positive evidence for a natural origin of COVID-19, saying that they've closed the case like this, this screws the lid shut on the debate that they, they know is from a market. So when you're a scientist in that field and you see someone with that much power and authority saying that, you, you tend to just go along without without really scrutinizing what they're saying, seeing if they have the data to back it up and whether uh, it, the argument is robust. So you uh, you published this book and people all over the world read it. You know, I, I personally know probably more than 15 people that have read it, including and that's not even including all the people from my podcast that read it. But how much did your life change after, you know, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people started reading your book? Um, I don't think it has changed that much. <laughs> uh, I, I think people see it as a life changing event. But for me, I, I was just relieved to have the book out um, and, and to get this um, very comprehensive, <laughs> fully fact checked, like, uh, like, story description of, of both natural and lab origins. And a lot of people who have not read the book have been told that it's like a it, it it's it's pimping on the lab origin hypothesis. But actually, if you read it, you realize that no, it, it gives a really fair, uh, you know, uh, balanced uh, representation to both both sides. So for me, I think it, it has definitely made me more of a public figure. But I think otherwise, it's my life is pretty low key and I try to keep it less, less stressful. Yeah. So how much have you stayed up on this? I, I, from my perspective, I see your Twitter and I think, oh man, she is going at this as hard as she was when I saw her around the time when her book published. Is that true? I think that the moments when it's, it, when there's a frenzy. So every time there's a new batch of emails released or, or there are new documents released, there's a frenzy. Uh, when the natural origin site pushes out a, a preprint claiming that they've solved the case, there's a frenzy. So there, there are moments when there's a huge amount of activity and you have to respond to that. But otherwise, it, it's pretty low key. Yeah. So you mentioned that you were uh, you know, accused of pimping out the, the uh, lab leak hypothesis. What other feedback did you get from your book that maybe you didn't expect? Um, I, I think I would say that, uh, that the book got quite a bit of uh, good coverage as well as bad coverage. But the, the good coverage led to a lot of scientists around the world, like uh, sending me snail mail, <laughs> like sending me like cutouts of the, the press releases and things like that, telling me keep up the good work or uh, emailing me. I, some of these are virologists, by the way, like top virologists at top 
like institutes, but they just don't want to publicly come on and say that this was a good book. But they've been sending me all these messages and things saying like, you're on the right track, like don't stop looking. Um, and they and some of them are quite mad at their colleagues, the ones who are uh, just uh, going 100% raccoon dog origin. <laughs> yeah. So um, now COVID, you know, I can go into any grocery store, the people don't wear masks, there's nowhere near the level of fear. Where do you think public perception of COVID goes in the next few months and years? I think that there are really diverse reactions to, to how the pandemic is going, right? So you, you've got people who are now lining up to get the fourth booster. I mean, the, the fourth shot of the vaccine, uh, there are people who are really worried about the BA.2 variant, the new variant that, that seems to be dominating, especially in Europe. Um, I, I think for a lot of us and, and for, for myself, just, just a sense of fatigue and, and the knowledge that this is going to go on for a long time. And we have, we have no ability to know when it will be back to normal. We just we just don't know. Like uh, everyone's praying and hoping that this summer will be, the, you know, all the all the variants will go away and we'll we'll have like complete immunity and that kind of thing. But I think that that's too optimistic because there's still large parts of the world where people don't have access to effective vaccines. And yeah, yeah. well, I think that uh, for many people, at least in the in the circles I run around with, like rural and and those areas, like the belief is. COVID is done, and mm -hmm. if it comes back, it is only propaganda that, that to, to see that, hey, we need to put masks back on or we need to, you know, house in, you know, go back into our houses or shut down businesses. To the people in the world that I run around with, they would view that as nothing other than hysteria and hysteria that we should know better from because COVID didn't get us last time. But you're saying you think there'll be legitimate fears that people could have that they would want to take precautions that are that are um, reminiscent of where we came from yes because if you if you think about it on a global level so zooming out away from the us alone you, you see that the large populations of people who don't have access to good vaccines to working vaccines and and unfortunately that includes china so china has not been able to give you know one plus billion of their population, the mRNA vaccines, they've mostly used their own uh, homemade Sinovac or Sinopharm vaccines. And they, they are kind of facing this issue now where if, if COVID blows through that country right now, that's, that's like hundreds of millions of people infected. Like you have no idea what's going to come out at the end, like what kind of novel variant will come out, whether it will have, it'll be so different that all the vaccines need to be updated again. Or you need to get like six or seven boosters. So uh, I'd say that right now it's just so unpredictable. Um, I I also wish that the pandemic will be over like tomorrow, but I think we also have to be really uh, cautious and and cognizant, like aware of all these risks that are out there outside of outside of the U.S. But still, they will they'll find their way into the U.S. if it happens. Yeah, you were even mentioning there that there's some variant uh, in Europe. I've never heard of that. And then I see in China, at least I see over Twitter, that China is putting things into lockdown. Mm -hmm. And these almost seem like uh, watching a snowstorm somewhere else where I'm like, ah, that's kind of just past that or that, that's, you know, what they're dealing with. But you think these things are, are going to brew in other places or have the high potential and come here? 
Yeah, that, that's been the story for most of the other variants, like the, the Alpha variant that, that was first detected in the UK. It also blew through the US, the Delta variant that also was detected in India and blew, blew through the US. Then Omicron, which was from uh, detected in the African continent and then blew through the US. So like a, a snowstorm is limited by area, by geography, but the virus isn't. So it's just one plane right away. Yeah. So I think one of the things that became much better known after your book was published was the role of the EcoHealth Alliance and Peter Daszak and that, you know, the U.S. had more of a, of a role in whatever is going on than anyone was thinking beforehand. Mm -hmm. Since the time you published the book, have more emails been put out? Has there been more of a spotlight on EcoHealth Alliance? Yes, uh, the Republicans uh, in, in the U.S. actually... Uh, released a transcript of, of emails that were exchanged amongst uh, top US scientists in, in early 2020. So these emails had been foiled, had been uh, leaked, uh, had been released through the Freedom of Information Act in, in middle of 2021, but they were almost like 90% redacted. So the Republicans sent their staffers in there and they, they transcribed what was underneath those redactions and they, they released those early this year. And so that, that created another storm because it looked like all of these experts, uh, at, at least most of them who were mentioned in the emails, were extremely concerned about a lab origin of COVID-19. Uh, they specifically looked at one part of the virus that they just couldn't understand how that had appeared in the virus naturally. And, and they, they speculated all sorts of ways that this could have occurred in a, in a lab. So I, I would say that from, from my point of view, uh, in early 2020, I had no idea of the U.S. involvement. Like, frankly, I just thought of this as as kind of routine virus research that was conducted in many countries, and just like unfortunately, an accident might have happened in China and caused a pandemic. But it could have happened anywhere else. But I had no idea that this work was so uh, encouraged and so highly funded by by U.S. Uh, scientists, by U.S. leaders. Yeah, it really feels like when you're uh, looking at the way this all played out, and I'm, I'm sure I've heard this from listening to interviews that you and Matt Ridley have done, um, in addition to the book, where th that the, the amount that the U.S. was playing in this game, it was, it was certainly not inconsequential. But then the weirdest part about it was using china was almost like using cuba to be able to have guantanamo bay right where you're outside of the rules of what normally is allowed to happen but because you're in this other country now you don't have to follow the rules is that why you think the u.s was working with china on this or did china have some special scientists that we needed access to I think the latter. So actually, the, the same type of research was being done in the US as well. But the one thing that required Chinese uh, collaboration was access to these viruses. So China had uh, unfettered access to these viruses in South China. There were many provinces there, and that's where they did most of their virus hunting. Uh, and later, we found out that China also had connections with uh, seven Southeast Asian countries who were directly sending samples up. Uh, along that, that strip where there's just a whole diversity of viruses sending all of these up directly into Wuhan city. So that is not something that the US had at the time. Although now there's ongoing research where these samples from Singapore, Thailand and Malaysia are being sent directly to the US for similar types of research. 
so some of the research if you're trying to to be fair to the to the people that are funding this stuff is to say hey if we just wait until um you know a bat virus gets out into the u the human population then there's a whole bunch of stuff we won't know or imagine there are bad actors that are grabbing these viruses and and engineering them in such a negative way so therefore we need to do this research in order that they don't get ahead of us how does that 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 line of reasoning sit with you? I think that line of reasoning doesn't match up with reality. And and there's evidence to, to back up what I'm saying. Because there's this this the whole virus hunting scheme that was funded with hundreds of millions of US tax dollars has not led to uh, better prevention of, of outbreaks, uh, better tracking of outbreaks. So what has actually happened is that a lot of these millions of dollars have gone to international collaborators who can decide how much data they want to share with you. So even though US dollars have paid for this data, for part of the data at least, they have no control. <laughs> they, they have to beg, they have to say, can you please share your data with us? And China said, no. So, <laughs> so and in this case, unfortunately, it looks like the money has gone to create someone's database of very dangerous viruses and, and the US has been blocked out of it. So I would say that the argument that you're funding it to, to gain access, uh, where, how, how can you back this up? You don't even have access to the database. Yeah, and like I, I noticed on your Twitter feed, there was some things where you were like, look, there's a whole bunch of data after 2016 that they just, you know, there's like a black hole. We knew mm -hmm. they were collecting information, only mm -hmm. when we asked them for their data, all of a sudden it just kind of goes dark there. Yeah, exactly. So we are completely at the mercy of the people who are doing the actual field work and, and, and taking the samples back to their lab for characterization for study. So if they don't want to tell us, then, then there's nothing we can do. And if they keep the juiciest viruses for themselves, there's nothing we can do either. So I think that the whole approach uh, has, that, has that enormous potential for failure. Coming from the diplomatic world, I can understand why the US government and the Chinese government might have some limited conversations where they say, we're going to keep this behind, you know, we're going to redact this information or we're not going to share this with other people because we need to be able to have flexibility to discuss things that the public might not find palatable, but is necessary. So I get that. But when it comes to scientific data, this seems like uh, the most bizarre thing you could think of that there's information that um, one government can have that the other one can't have that that uh, one group would get to control where these black holes are in the in the data how like are there other examples of this happening or is this just a one-off situation where where they're where there's making claims that they can have access to the data but we can't i think that it's not exclusive to China, because this type of research actually spanned many countries, even across the Middle East and other parts of Asia uh, and Africa. Um, but the, the US funders have acknowledged that it is up to each one of these collaborators, whether or not they, they share any data at all. So some of them could say, no, I don't want to share any data with you. And it still goes forward. So there's no mechanism in place to to enforce data sharing, there's no mechanism in place to check if the data shared is comprehensive. So someone could take that money and, and find 10,000 viruses, but at the end of the day, they only share 100 with you and say, we only found 100. So how do you know how many viruses they found? How, how do you force them to, to share the data with you, right? So all of that 
is still not in place, and yet more hundreds of millions are being poured into this type of research. So my my main concern is that this money is going to fund all these private collections of pathogens around the world to which the US has extremely limited access. Now, when we were talking a little bit before with about Peter Dizak and uh, Eco Health Alliance, has anything happened to them because of their involvement with uh, with the lead up to this COVID outbreak? Yeah, so I, it, it bothers me that uh, some of the Eco Health Alliance uh, personnel, including Peter Dizak or Dashak, like he they have been harassed a lot and received death threats and the like and i fully condemn that i don't think that people should be stalking them and sending them death threat uh, death, death threats like go through the proper process like you know publicly write letters calling for subpoenas uh, calling for the release of documents but don't don't threaten them with violence because that that puts them more <laughs> on the defense and gives them a rationale to tell people, hey, look at all the crazy conspiracy theorists who are trying to kill me. Uh, so I'm, I'm the good guy and they are the bad guy. So I think that uh, how, how the harassment has unfolded is not right. Even though a lot of people uh, are reasonably upset that this, this organization and, and their president has repeatedly withheld information that could be relevant to the origin of COVID-19. Now that time has elapsed, um, do you believe we will still find the origin of COVID? Yes, uh, especially because the US-China relationship on this has gotten clearer and clearer. It looks like there are more and more documents and email communications that are probably here in the US that can tell us what was happening in Wuhan. So we may not have access to their database, but we may be able to see what types of experiments they were considering in the years leading up to the pandemic. And that can really help us to, to flesh out, like, had they, had they started putting in, you know, these uh, unnatural genetic modifications into novel viruses that found, and, and could this have been the pandemic virus? Could this have been how it started? So a few, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago now, everything seems to run together. There was a huge uproar. Russia started saying, look, the, there are labs just like the Wuhan labs that are in the Ukraine. U.S. is running those. Um, is, is there any merit to this? Are they right? Uh, is, is this overblown hype? What's going on there? I think the same thing happened with the Wuhan lab, actually, is that a lot of people immediately started accusing it of making bioweapons. Uh, and that's that completely took over the uh, narrative of a, of a lab accident, when actually just very routine experiments can lead, can lead to outbreaks and, and that can cause a pandemic. Um, and so I think we, we have to dial it back to what is factual. And what is factual is that there are a lot of labs around the world that are engaged in biodefense or potentially dual use research. So the problem with biological research is that the, the same the same virus that you're studying can be used to develop a vaccine or it can be used to develop a you know a bioweapon so it really depends on on the the person who's who's working with this virus and what their intent is and there are just dozens of these labs around the world and many of them uh, boast of international funding so they're funded by not just the us but by their home country europe many other sources of funding and they're they're very interconnected and they do store a large amount of dangerous pathogens inside these labs, especially the higher biosafety labs, like the biosafety level four labs. They'll have all sorts of 
pandemic level pathogens. Uh, but the purpose of that is, is not to create bioweapons, <laughs> but to develop treatments and to study these viruses. So I'm not surprised that Ukraine would have these labs, like many countries have these labs, and they're scattered throughout Europe. Europe has dozens of these labs. And so um, I, I think that what has happened is that the, this information has really focused on painting these labs as, as bioweaponry labs, when, reali when in reality, we just have a lot of these labs for biodefense. So um, you've been working at the Broad Institute. Um, how has your work changed? Are you still, yeah, how has your work changed since um, you got involved with COVID and then even since your book has been published? Well, I still work really hard at work. So I still do a lot of experiments, like full, like 10 to 12 hour long experiments. <laughs> so it, I... Tell us about those experiments. What do you do at the Broad Institute? Uh, I work on gene therapy. So I actually engineer viruses to deliver uh, therapeutic genes to people. Uh, and so I know that when, when people hear the word like or the phrase virus engineering, they get all freaked out now because of the pandemic. But actually, the, the vast majority of viruses do not cause human disease. And I, I don't work with viruses that cause human disease or could start an outbreak in humans. But many of these viruses can be repurposed to to serve a really good function in medicine. For example, all of these uh, PCR tests that we are taking uh, for COVID-19, it came from the components for that, the key ingredient for that PCR test came from studying a virus. So <laughs> and so many viruses can be repurposed and, and uh, re-engineered to, to serve, uh, like to, to be useful for human health. I guess I didn't realize uh, my mistake on this, but I was thinking you were just a full-time uh, where did COVID come from, Hunter, um, that, that we're doing that? I didn't realize that this is uh, your part-time or your your spare time work. It is my spare time work. So, I mean, people should, my, my the people who are afraid of me should should hope that I have a very busy life at the Broad. <laughs> because if I, if I had double the time to look into origins, I would be unstoppable. <laughs> Do, has your uh, interest in it stayed the same as whatever connected you to it before? I would say that my interest grew as, as more and more uh, evidence and information came out, especially regarding the research that was happening in Wuhan. Um, I really I really did try to to close the book on this with the book. I really did want to just, just put out whatever I knew in that book and just leave it behind. But somehow I still keep getting sucked back into it every time there's like a new batch of like FOIA emails or a new batch of uh, preprints from from the natural origin side of things. So it, it's, it's been difficult. Like every time I try to leave, they pull me back in. And it's just like all these people emailing me and messaging me all the time. Like it goes all the way from people in the US government to other scientists to internet sleuths, just like just everyone bombarding me every time there's a new finding, asking me to interpret it or to, to work on this. So it's it's been sometimes challenging, but I, I would say that I, I put my broad work first. So there are many times when I was just like, I cannot work on the origins thing. I need to finish my my huge like experiment first and then I'll get back to this when I have time. Yeah, yeah I mean, I've definitely felt the intensity when um, just even when I just asked on Twitter, where did where did uh, COVID come from? But even when I published the podcast, the people that are interested in this subject are so interested in it and mm -hmm. so intense that you may get you know, three or four or five messages in a single day from a person <laughs> that you've never even responded to. And so you see like, well, 
it takes a certain kind of person to want to persevere and keep looking in this subject when the rest of the world has moved on. Um, but it's a level of intensity that's uh, not easy to um, to navigate, I think. Yeah, I think that intensity um, is fun on a lot of scientists. So like, I, I also have that obsessive compulsive uh, personality when it comes to scientific questions is, is when I when I think the answer is within reach. I won't let anyone tell me that I can't find it. <laughs> I won't let anyone bully me into thinking that we can't find the origin or that the case is closed. Like I, I'm like, I know that we can find it and evidence isn't settled yet. So you, you better stop harassing me <laughs> and let, let people investigate. Yeah. So when you think about the average person in the world with all the things that they have to pay attention to, whether it's the news that's going on in the world or their own personal life, how much should a person care or put energy into um, discovering the origins of COVID? I'd say that most people have their own struggles during this pandemic. And, and because of that, they don't have the bandwidth to consider the origin of COVID that, that much. Um, and that, that is totally normal and expected. There are so many healthcare workers who are just like slammed with like COVID cases and other cases indirectly caused by COVID just throughout this pandemic, they don't have the bandwidth to be looking at the origin of COVID-19. Uh, you've got all these other experts in public health, um, you know, vaccine experts and th things like that. They're just hyper-focused on their goal, right? Like make good public health policy, develop effective vaccines. So they don't have time to pay uh, to look at the origin. Um, but what I would say is that it's important to each acknowledge the importance of our respective work. I think developing vaccines extremely important. Uh, you know, public health extremely important. I also think the origin is extremely important. So I think we should all be respectful of each other's interests because these these are very important questions for the next pandemic too. Just developing our vaccine uh, infrastructure, our public health infrastructure, and and also finding out how these pandemics start so that we can stop it next time or find ways to detect it more quickly. One thought I had after our interview was, I, th I think like it's easy to go to somebody like you and say, what happens um, if we discover this? And what do you think should happen to China? Or what do you think should happen to the people involved with it? But a another question is, is there an inherent danger that you destabilize the world if you do discover an answer? If you do discover there were people doing nefarious things or nations? I mean, it could go from a lab leak to uh, warring nations. Are you concerned at all about the truth causing negative impacts? Well, I don't understand why a war would start because the US funded the work and this type of work is done in, you know, most of the developed countries around here, like Europe also does this work. So just because China was the unfortunate one, if it came from a lab this time, it why, why would that be a war? I, I don't understand because they had collaborated with scientists from all around the world. So it's, it's collectively everyone's fault, if you want to look at it that way. I mean, the, the version, the problem that's been pitched to me is that this would destabilize trust in scientists. But for me, why are you protecting the science more than human life? Because if this came from a lab accident, we have to stop this happening again. We, we can't just let, you know, it'd be a wild west <laughs> in science and just, okay, don't worry, start as many pandemics as you want, we'll never investigate you. Like the whole point of science is to enhance and protect human life. So that comes first, that should be investigated first. And that's how you build trust in science. It shouldn't be the other way around where you build trust in science by hiding the truth from people. That That is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree with that. Like the, the, 
the credibility of scientists should be in question. Like, I, I think that we, we want to have a very healthy dose of skepticism because when you start using words, like, you know, like phrases like uh, the science is spoken or the science <laughs> is settled, these kinds of things, then it makes um, science is more of a religion than it is like a, a verb, a process. Yeah, it, it's again, unfortunate because everyone is so stretched in by the pandemic that not everyone has time to go through all of the data, like thousands of pages of data and uh, reports and things like that. So a lot of this follow the science mentality is really people saying, I trust this scientist. I trust this scientist and I don't need to look at the data because he or she has looked at all the data. So unfortunately, when that happens, it can lead to abuse. So that when there are people in power who have this public trust, they they can unintentionally make errors, but unfortunately that makes the whole of society go crazy in some ways, like about masks or vaccines, or, or they can know that they have that power and just say things for their own benefit and, and hope that everyone just takes their word for it. So I think it's very dangerous when there isn't a, a structure in place, a science communication, science reporting structure in place, a scientific, like among scientists structure in place to, to cross check each other and be able to say, hey, no, I think this really influential scientist is actually really wrong on this topic. You know, earlier you mentioned that uh, it's not just the the China's fault, or if this came from China, that it would be our collective responsibility, or at least the U.S. would have some role in. That's a novel thought. In fact, that's not even one I've heard entertained by anyone so far. But it does seem like if you came to a country and said, "Look, we're not going to get mad. Like, we mm -hmm. just need to figure out how this happened," it's a, it's a little akin to uh, you know a parent being like. You, you don't, you know, like, I'm not going to get mad at you, but tell me the truth. But in some way, trying to, to make sure that whoever actually caused this, if it was China, that it's more important to us to get the correct answer than it is to get retribution, that that would be a, a very helpful way to untie this knot. Yeah, and I think this is how it should have been in early 2020, rather than US scientists saying it's a conspiracy theory to suggest a lab accident started this pandemic. They should have said, actually, we are business partners in this. <laughs> and even the best scientists have accidents. Like, let's treat this very seriously, take a lab accident, like seriously, and respond appropriately. I think that would have changed the entire course of the pandemic, frankly, if they had said that, if they had said, like, yeah, maybe we might have accidentally enhanced this virus in the lab and then got out. Like, I think the response from international governments would have been completely different as opposed to what we were fed in early 2020, which is this came from a wild animal at the market. Everything's normal. It's just SARS-1 happening again, that kind of rhetoric. Uh, so I think that there was a, uh, there was a huge mistake made at that time. And what do you think? Are we safer today than we were um, four or five years ago from a, a, like COVID? No, we're not. <laughs> so both in terms of the wildlife trade and research, we are not safer. So China did ban wildlife for consumption, but it's notable that they have not they have not banned their fur trade, which is where many of these intermediate hosts or animal hosts of novel viruses come from. So all these raccoon dogs, minks, civets, they're still being grown in the millions in, in China. Uh, even other countries have, have shut it down. So like uh, the Netherlands, I think they have shut down their mink industry after it was found that a human passed COVID to a mink and the mink passed it back to humans. They realized it was a huge risk of, of cross-species transmission. So they shut it down. Uh, but China's still ongoing. It's still, it's still allowing the trade of pangolins. It's still <laughs> allowing the trade of all these uh, animals that could pass novel viruses to humans. So we are not safer from a natural spillover.
Um, yeah. What is the, when you think about, you know, of the people that can take time. So let's imagine that the people listen to this podcast say, you know, I've probably got 30, 45 minutes to go look into these things. What kinds of questions should people be asking themselves rather than just the binary, was it created in a lab or what, or not? Right. Like, are there other questions you think people should be asking themselves with so they can understand this this uh, pandemic in a better way? I think one thing that really stands out to me uh, is how scientific findings get communicated to the public. So I, I think one thing that, that really became extremely apparent to me is that there are some really well connected scientists who who can tap into their journalist friends and immediately get their findings out into the front pages of, of top media, who can immediately talk to someone in government and say, this, this is the truth because I'm a scientist, I'm an expert, and this is the truth. And so unfortunately that these, these channels by which there's a fast pass for science that may not be well or rigorously reviewed by, by, by other experts with opposing or diverse viewpoints. So these, these can be exploited during times of crisis to result in a lot of misinformation coming from experts in the pandemic. So I'm hoping that that gets corrected on top of solving the origin of COVID-19. And I think that they, they can be done at the same time. In fact, they have to be done at the same time because by finding out who were the scientists and how did they spread misinformation, whether intentionally or not, we can start to see what all this, all these untruths are, and and find our find our way to the origin of COVID nineteen. Yeah, I mean, I was uh, in preparation for this interview. I was watching one of the exchanges between uh, Ron Paul and Fauci, and it was it was interesting to me that Ron Paul pointed out Fauci had some emails that said, "Hey, don't worry about it. I got this in Wired. We're going to burn down the the reputations of these scientists over here." And you think. Man, that is one of the powers, you know, a, a bureaucrat maybe doesn't have a ton of power, but if they have the bully pulpit where they, you know, they can ring up Wired Magazine or Nature and get their point of view put out there, man, that is a power asymmetry that should be addressed. Yeah, exactly. And it's unfortunate that some of these scientists who have those connections keep challenging like junior scientists like me saying, why don't you publish in Nature then? <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm not you. I don't, I'm not best friends. I'm not whining and dining editors and Nature on the New York Times. So it, it's a, it's kind of, I think they're really mean. <laughs> What do you think about the state of uh, scientific publishing now after we've seen so many letters get signed by people and, and things like this? Because it seems to me that at least the general public, maybe not the scientific community, but the general public has lost a lot of faith in those institutions. Is that true of scientists? I think it's true. I think even scientists have lost faith in, in scientific publishing and, and uh reporting in the news. And this isn't a COVID only thing. It wasn't like COVID happened and then suddenly we all uh, reached that conclusion. Actually, many of us were on our way. Uh, we, we've known, scientists have known for many years that the way that we publish science is completely broken and, and predatory in many ways. Uh, and I, I wish that through this pandemic, we could quickly fix those things before another crisis happens and all these uh, shortcomings get exploited again. So one really easy way is just to uh, open peer review is to is to make all of the review of, of every publication. So the way that science gets published is that you you write up your work and then you send it to a journal and they get some other experts to privately 
uh, review your work and then the journal decides, am I going to publish this or not? But unfortunately, the way that it works some of the times is that when you're really famous scientists and you're good friends with the editors, they tend to give you an easier time going through this process. They might get your friends to peer review your work. So they might say, yeah, these, these guys always give a, you know, a good review and then your work gets out. So one way to, to get rid of that corruption <laughs> is to open up all peer reviews, to publish all the reviews and let other scientists see like, was this properly reviewed or did they get like a, a, a hall pass? And what is the, the response by the institutions? Because if it were an obvious slam dunk for them, uh, they would do it. But wh what do they say is the reason they don't want to do it? They have no incentive to do it. So what is the incentive? They're already making billions of dollars of revenue. So uh, there's, there's no carrot and there's no stick. Yeah, and it's funny because if you look at computer code, right, when when people are using that, the most reliable or the, the code that people depend on the most is open. And you can see where people have made commits and you can see where where people have said, like, no, this doesn't work or you, mm -hmm. you need to fix these bugs. But if the scientific community is, uh, you know, if you can get this past three reviewers and we don't really know who those reviewers, I mean, because you don't even know the, the public isn't made to where who the reviewers even were, correct? Yeah, even the the authors themselves, the scientists themselves, don't know who the reviewers are most of the time. Yeah, unless you're in some extremely rare field where you know there's only three other people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if the, if the reviewer says they didn't pay enough attention to my work, so then that's when you can have a good guess, yeah. So uh, in wrapping up, what is on the horizon? Where, where, where do you think the next big information drop will come? And, and you know, how do you see this playing out in the next three to six months? I think I'm quite optimistic that we will get a much better idea of where this, how this pandemic started uh, in the next two to five years. So I can't say too much about what I know, but I, there, there are investigations on their way. And I'm sure that some of these will unearth a lot of important information, although some of it will, much of it will probably not be able to be made public. But my, my hope is that they will get a balanced uh, committee on these investigations and they will have access to all these interviews of people, uh, access to data that cannot be made public. And through that, we will get much closer. And if uh, somebody was going to take those 15 to 30 minutes that they have to spend on COVID, what uh, is there something they can do that, that would blow oxygen on your work? Uh, I haven't really thought about that. <laughs> That's kind of a strange question. Um, well, I mean, I think that you had mentioned, you know, trying to get people um, to push for more open access. So would it be writing senators? Would it be, um, you know, contacting people? Like, what what is it that could happen that would make it so the scientists that are trying to discover the origins of COVID have the, the support of the public that they need? Yes, some of these gets into extremely technical areas, though. But if, if people want to write to their, their leaders saying that, yeah, we need to completely make, make public or to unearth as much of this like documentation, especially from the Equal Health Alliance and collaborators of the Wuhan Institute here in the US, that would be great because they have so far been extremely opaque on what they know. Uh, for example, it, it took them close to two years and, and someone had to leak their grant documents showing that they were doing quite risky research on these coronaviruses, SARS-like viruses in Wuhan. So if if people want to write letters saying that we need to see all this information, that would be great. And and more letters saying we need a US government initiated investigation. Yeah. 
Well, Alina Chan, thank you so much uh, for coming on and talking COVID again. I'm, I'm glad to, to keep a spotlight on it, even though most of the world's attention has moved past it. So thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me.